All right, I'll just ask, where is your pile? Just where is it in your house? You know what I'm talking about. Every family has a pile. You try to be tidy. You try to stay clutter-free. But it all ends up in that pile. Is it in the front entry table right when you walk in? Is it above your fridge? Is it on top of your fridge? What cabinet? Which part of the counter have you designated, accidentally, unintentionally, inadvertently designated as your pile spot? Pile gets out of control. You come in with so many things in your hands every day. What do you put in the pile? Obviously the mail, but not the mail that you throw away and not the mail that you immediately deal with. The pile gets like the fast track, invoice, maybe the value pack. Hey, maybe we'll use that coupon one day. No, you won't. Tree removal. Hey, maybe one day. No, you won't. Window replacement coupon. Yeah, for one day. No, you won't, but put it in the pile. You got your voter's manual in that pile. What else is in your pile? You know your pile. Every family's got that pile. It's out of control, right? Someone even brought a shoebox. You don't know who brought a shoebox, thinking they're going to organize everything, but what did they do? They just perpetuated the issue. You gave someone the idea, like, it's okay. We're allowed to do that. No, you're not. You're not decluttering. You're just creating a situation six months from now that's going to be a little intimidating, a little overwhelming. You know that pile, once you discover what's in it after six months, you're like, almonds, day quill. These broken sunglasses, why not just throw them away? What do you think? Someone was going to fix those broken sunglasses? It goes way beyond paper. A pet's collar? A pet that died three years ago, their collar's at the bottom of that pile? Batteries to that kid's toy? Which kid's toy was it? Kids don't even play with that toy that would require those little circular batteries. Or is that, is that the circular battery for the scale? Throw it. Just throw it away. You never needed it. You convinced yourself, I might need it. Eh, I might keep it. Eh, maybe hold on to this. How many cologne samples are in the pile? You still ripping them out of the magazines? How many post-it note to-do lists are in the pile? How many little kids' drawings are in the pile? By the way, we're allowed to throw them away. They come home every day. Don't feel bad. You could throw some of those little kids' doodles away that come home in the backpack, kind of crumpled up, but you're like, oh, is this a pumpkin? Is this a strawberry? Is this your name? Is this a ghost? Throw it away. It's okay. It's not for the baby book. Plus, you're not even doing a baby book because everything's in the pile. That pile is totally out of hand. After five to six months and you finally tackle it, you convince yourself, all right, we won't do this again. We will not stress ourselves out with a pile. Every family's got that pile. Where is it on your counter? Look right now. Look. You see it? With the Kohl's cash? With the wedding invitation? You didn't RSVP to? You see it? Right on that front entryway table, the stuff that's spilling out of the drawers? You see it, don't you? The directions to the Cuisinart? You're not going to use the directions. You don't even use the Cuisinart. It's okay to throw it all away. And welcome in. That's the new slogan of Here We Go with Josh Rosenberg. It's okay to throw it all away. Say it with me, folks. And now look under your chair for the prize of the day. It's episode 196. I got to get going. I got to actually go quick. I got to squeeze this in. My wife and daughter are at a birthday party. I got the baby sleeping right now. That nap is about to end. I know it. I already heard it. Beep, 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 beep. Beep, beep. You know when the baby's sleeping and you're like the first beep, it just jolts you. You're like, no, 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 no beep, no, nip, nip, nip. not yet. Give me a moment to calibrate. 196, trying to do this one in the morning where I still got the crust in your eye. Crust in the eye? 
podcast? You can't do a podcast with the crust in the eye. Haven't brushed my teeth yet. Haven't splashed any water on my face. This one's going to get weird. Why not? Everything's getting weird. We have new school COVID protocols. And now a word about COVID-19. In public schools, in the area I live in, kids can now come to school with COVID. I'm not complaining. I might catch COVID again this year. And if they say, yeah, you could come after five days, even if you're positive, I probably will. Of course, I'll wear a mask. But the fear of it's too many days away from the classroom, which teachers and students might feel. Well, now that fear is going to be lessened a little bit because they officially said, kids, you could come in. Just stay home for five days. You got COVID. And then even if you're testing positive and then positive again and positive again, after five days, you could come back. And this happened to me for the first time. I had a student come up to me and he said, hey, what did I miss? And I was like, oh, wait, where you been? And he straight up said, oh, I had COVID. I still have COVID. And that was a first for me. Looking at a teenager who said, I have COVID. Yes, he was in a mask. But then he said to me, don't worry, I'm not contagious. I was like, how do we know? How do we know anything about this? We've never really known much. With these arbitrary return to school protocols, you know, by January, it's going to be like kids stay home for 22 hours and then they can learn outside for the first period of the day. They can come in for lunch and then they could sit at a desk close to the door. They will then sanitize their mouth and ears. And then we will let them out seven minutes early. And all of us will just go, oh, 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 okay, the new protocols. Yeah, the new protocols are in. I'm not trying to denounce science, but aren't some of us guessing with these school protocols? Kids could come in COVID positive, teachers too. Shit, times have changed. I always go back. I always go back to the first time you ever heard of that coronavirus. You remember, I was like, wait, someone came off a cruise and they're in the county? Ah, we must not let them off the cruise boat. Keep them on the cruise boat for five more years. We can't have them. And now it's just, hey, it's all over the place. COVID's on your face. We're all catching it. Five times a year. Diagnosing it maybe once, but COVID's all over your face. The residue of this whole pandemic, even though Biden said the pandemic's over. Thank you, President. He says the pandemic's over. It's over. Your president says anything. Set in stone. Actually, no. Isn't that weird that some people worship politicians? They just blindly follow in any direction. I don't care if you're right, left, smack in the middle. These people in suits at the podium, what are we doing? With our bumper stickers and your flags and your signs? Blindly following anyone? Stop it. Stop it. This is not a football game. It's not the World Cup. With your slogans and your lawn signs. What are we doing? We the people must take it upon ourselves. I don't know where that speech is going. But I do know one thing. This could be COVID protocols. Everyone's sick. It was the whole return to school. We got too excited. Now it's October and your kids have the sniffles. You have the sniffles. You're pumping. The day quill, night quill, night quill, day quill, day quill gets me up and night quill puts me back to sleep. And now I'm in a blur called life. This is a sick month, isn't it? It just is. You could hear the congestion. Diagnose me through your speakers, through your earbuds, through the AirPods, however you listen to this. You know something's wrong. Something's wrong with this talking head right now. I don't know. I'm negative. Don't you worry. 
But you can't dodge little kids. They're coming at you. I did take a little kid, not just any little kid, my little kid, to a high school football game yesterday. High school football? It's fun. I get into it. I get into it just as much as I would Monday night football. I don't know why. Just any form of football, it can capture my attention. The game I went to, T.L. Archie Williams. We got Falcons and Trojans on the field. And San Anselmo, just a big backpack full of popcorn and gummy bears and Gatorade and Cheetos and Doritos. And we went to the snack bar so much to try to keep a four-year-old interested in a football game. You see the cheerleaders? You see the kite? You see the flag? You see the people in the ground? And then occasionally you see that quarterback try to throw. It's tough. It's just me narrating a bunch of meaningless shit throughout the game. But it was fun. And the kids were having fun. The players were having fun. Here's my takeaway. In the first half, one kid on the other team had a great interception. Right after the play, he spins the ball on the field and all of his teammates come and they celebrate together and the ref throws the flag. Unsportsmanlike conduct. Penalty. Then a couple minutes later, one of the TL players just starts talking shit. After a great deflection, a cornerback had a deflection. He starts talking shit to the wide receiver. They throw another flag. Unsportsmanlike conduct there were a few it seemed like there were a few unsportsmanlike conduct and i had the opposite thought you think the adult would go yes keep these kids in line don't let them celebrate too much why not why not allow excessive celebrating in high school if they've been in their desks all week and they've committed to this sport called tackle football it's kind of courageous when you think about it still in marin county where parents are probably thinking not my kid most parents not all not my kid with all the research on CTE and concussions. I get it. If parents are keeping their kids out of football, rosters are smaller. But for the kids that are doing it, for the teens that are going full throttle and Saturday arrives, all that pent-up energy, they practiced all week, they finally got an opponent, all their friends are in the stands, their parents, you got the band, you got the music, you got the pageantry, it's homecoming. And all of a sudden you want to celebrate a little bit? What are we doing with the flags? I understand the other side of the debate is that it could be taunting. It could be bullying. I say let it go. They're obviously emulating the pros that they love. In what other facet of life are we not allowed to emulate the pros? That's usually a good thing, right? If you're an amateur doing anything and you start to imitate the professionals, the great professionals doing their craft, it's a good thing, right? Well, if they watch the NFL and they see a bunch of celebrations and then they want to celebrate with their teammates, enough with the flags, enough with the 15-yard penalty. Trojan? Nah, uh-uh. Whereas baseball has evolved into way too much celebrating. Here I am, the old man, get off my lawn. But I was watching the Major League Baseball playoffs. A Padres player had a single. He hit a single. A single. He gets to first base. He points to the heavens. He pumps his fist at the crowd. It wasn't even like a pivotal hit. It was just he was really happy to have hit the baseball into the outfield. Points to the heavens. Let's bring God right into it. Pumps his fist to the crowd. Points to the dugout. I was like, holy shit. That's a little much. I like a little bat flip. Not too much. I'd say a medium-sized bat flip after a key home run. But if you have high school baseball players watching that guy, I think it was Cronenworth, with his single, celebratory single, a single, and then you have the teens doing it. Maybe that's a little much. If you're the coach, you say, hey, tone it down. Pump the brakes. A little bit. But football football's a different beast. 
you're kind of putting your physical health out there on the line with every single play. And if you do something that's kind of spectacular, I say you stop the game for 42 seconds and let the teams just go fucking nuts. Don't tell me that decreases the entertainment value. Don't tell me it's not teaching them the right lessons. What lessons? There's already enough rules. What side am I on? Are you an adult or are you a kid? I don't know. I'm an adult who still knows there's a kid deep down in there. I'll let him out sometimes. Oh yeah, I'll let him out. Actually, here's the perfect passage to capture an older generation looking at a younger generation from Chuck Klosterman's hit book, The 90s. My buddy Alex sent me this excerpt. This is right in the book. It says, Older generations despise new generations for multiple reasons, although most are assorted iterations of two. Number one, they perceive the updated version of themselves as either softer or lazier or both. These categorizations tend to be accurate. But that's positive. That's progress. If a society improves, the experience of growing up in that society should be less taxing and more comfortable. If technology advances and efficiency increases, emerging generations should rationally expect to work less. If new kids are not soft and lazy, something has gone wrong. Yeah, these kids, I don't want to call them soft and lazy, but if they get a little too comfortable, that's a result of success in society as previous generations work their asses off, to give them that life. Not sure how I'll connect that to high school football, but just take that swallow pill and wash it down. Older generations always just trying to figure out what's the next generation all about. We always sound so detached when we try to assess them and analyze them and evaluate them. And maybe that's the point. We can be compassionate, but we don't know. We don't know. They're very in tune with their mental health. We know that. Like, I never heard the two words panic attack in high school when I was in high school. Does that mean we weren't having panic attacks? Not sure. But if a modern-day 16-year-old seems to be having so much nervousness and anxiousness and emotion in a moment, and it's debilitating, they can't even react, they can't even have a conversation, they go, I'm having a panic attack, whatever the symptoms are, whatever they Googled is a panic attack, and they go, yep, I identify with that and that and that, I'm having a panic attack, then you hear it a lot. I've had so many students say they've had a panic attack, having a panic attack, we'll have a panic attack next week, so schedule me out. Fine, fine. Like I said, the older generation who might not totally understand, we're compassionate, we'll be considerate, but then you rewind time and you go, wait, where were the panic attacks in the mid to late 90s? Where were the attacks? I guess we weren't just diagnosing ourselves or labeling ourselves. We were just muscling through. And before that, are you kidding me? Our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, your great-grandparents, they didn't have panic attacks. They went and got fresh air and came back into whatever social setting they were a part of. Tommy, you don't look so good. Go get some fresh air. The year's 1912. Hey, Tommy, get your ass out of here. You're sweating. You're convulsing. Clearly very worried about something. Go get some fresh air. Don't pump them with Prozac. Don't pump them with the meds yet. By the way, pumping us with meds and meds and meds, you gotta watch the Michael Pollan Netflix series, How to Change Your Mind. It's based on his book. Michael Pollan's the journalist who usually writes about food, I think, but now he's writing about psychedelics. It's like a four-episode series. I watched the one about psilocybin, magic mushrooms. Fascinating. 
He basically says a lot of people who are taking prescribed medications for whatever disorder, whatever ailment, whatever they're going through, they complain about the side effects and how addictive it is. Not that they don't like the feeling of how the pill works. Whatever pill you're taking and it works, you go, thank the heavens. Thank you. Good. It works. But I don't love all the side effects and I don't love the fact that I'm so fully addicted. I probably can't get off. So he's having a bunch of psychologists and scientists research psilocybin and he's not conducting all of the studies he's kind of reporting on it in layman's terms for people like me to try to understand and convey on this podcast for people like you who are like what's what, what's the point number one he says it's a one-time thing if you have a controlled regulated trip for lack of a better word if you're just picturing shroom trip like a bunch of the hippies in golden gate park try to picture it more regulated in like a doctor's office with a couple people with clipboards and you're in a bed all right, that's not the ideal shroom trip, but consider this scientific psilocybin research. And Michael Pollan is showing you how it has worked. It's been successful, but maybe if you're one trip away, here's the conspiracy theory that big pharma, these big companies, they don't like that. They're like, wait, one trip away from being healed and cured? No, no, no. We like you to be addicted, so we get to keep selling and selling and selling to your doctors and selling and selling and selling. We want you hooked. We want you to be dependent on something where the money's going to keep coming in. If you're like one psilocybin trip away from dealing with whatever inner turmoil has created such a disorder in your mind, then that's not going to get fast-tracked by most big medical corporations today. However, this is Netflix, so maybe it becomes mainstream where more people get interested in psilocybin. And I know a lot of doctors, psychiatrists, actually just recently talked to a psychiatrist, the older sibling of a friend of mine, who lives in Boston, who's doing studies on this. And if I call them shrooms, I know what you're picturing. A lot of people get scared. Magic mushrooms, I don't want to have a bad trip. Fine, then don't take it. No one's forcing you. But for the people that are truly desperate, and there's people in their 60s, 70s, they know all the stigmas, they know the reputation of magic mushrooms. It does sound a little scary if you're not in the mood to trip, but therapists believe, and a lot of these researchers believe the mind can heal itself the way the body heals itself. Like our bodies heal themselves. Isn't that amazing? You get sick for a week, something's happening. Something's happening to this beautiful system where it starts to heal itself. Not of every disease, but of a lot. It's wonderful. Well, can the mind do the same thing to itself? That's the question. And scientists are looking for data. They're not looking for anything qualitative or subjective. But it's the connection back to nature. For all these people, and it could be cancer patients. It could be OCD the special on Netflix, I think it's the second episode. If you check it out, it's an assortment of ailments. And these people that have done the regulated, controlled trips, they're coming back with such incredible results. Like, I no longer feel the depression. I no longer feel the anxiety. I no longer have the panic attacks. And you're like, whoa, what is in this? Well, it connects people back to this primal connection to nature that really doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. In the book Sapiens, one of the aspects is the author Harari, Noah Yuval Harari. He says, Homo sapiens were happiest when we were just wanderers. The agricultural revolution, that's the point where people start to develop personality disorders. And stresses that didn't used to exist. Stresses upon stresses. The way you organize your day. But go back to the early days of wanderers. They were so connected to nature. 
that maybe that was the happiest era for humankind. Maybe. I don't know. It's a good book, Sapiens. Check it out if you want. But the idea is nowadays your life is on a clock. It's on a calendar. It's being pushed to grab the next paycheck, to get the next payday. You're inundated with so many screens. We know, we know. From industrialization to urbanization, all these things we did to humans and the environment, it sounds pretty negative, right? Of course it sounds negative. But what if you're one trip away from having such a deep connection back to nature? And when I say nature, our natural human form, which probably wasn't intended to have all these stresses that we all feel. And even if it's like a six-hour trip, that that could start to heal you? To just strip you of all the mental narratives that you keep telling yourself? Gets deep. Gets deep. I don't even know if I'm articulating it anymore, but I'll, I'll, I'll articulate something else from Sapiens. And this, this is the discussion of all discussions. How did we get so damn smart? If we're evolving out of such primitive forms until we get to this intelligent being called Homo sapien, how did we separate ourselves from everything else and everybody else? The miracle of consciousness. Cognitive metacognition. And my wife tried to explain this to me once five years ago, and I was like, what? No. I just said, no. It's a theory. That this evolutionary leap to make us the only beings, us humans, the only beings inhabiting this planet to be just so smart and advanced and innovative, which we are. We are. Not bragging, but we are. It's an evolutionary leap. And the book basically says, we used to be, these brains, they used to be like the Neanderthals. Then an accidental genetic mutation rewired our brains. I'll say it again. I'll say it nine times. So if you're on Apple Podcasts right now, speed it up to 1.5 speed. Accidental genetic mutation rewired our brains. An accidental genetic mutation rewired our brains. The whole book is supposed to be, he's a journalist reporting on science. But when you start to say accidental, that was like a genetic mutation. What happened? And then humans start to do some incredible things like building boats and planned agriculture, lamps and arrows, modern medicine modern weapons you know it just kind of accelerates real quickly the way it's currently accelerating is because our brains don't stop they just keep going and going and going that's evolution in itself but that's the most commonly believed theory accidental genetic mutation yeah something happened and then we got smart then we just separate ourselves from it. i don't know i think that's why some people go nah that's that's god you take the flip side of that argument and go nah i'm sorry sapiens that's just some God stuff. What is God? I don't know. But that sounds God-like. If you don't want to agree with this theory, that's when you go, well, I guess the other part of that is if you can't explain it, you just look up to a higher power and you go, that's on you, huh? Higher power? And some people go, there's no higher power. That's the discussion. I don't even want to call it a debate because it shouldn't be contentious. It's too fascinating for it to be contentious. But a genetic mutation? How is it? How are we this way? How did it happen? Science can explain so many other things, but when they say accidental mutation, you go, it's not explaining anything. That's just like a fun theory. It's a good theory. I bet someone really smart could tell me the inner workings of the theory, but I'm just like, I don't know. That's when it's all just such a mystery. We're stumbling through a dream. We're all just stumbling through a dream. Now I'm writing lyrics. Yes, I am. All right, that's heavy. That's a little much for the brain. I've always said that humans can only handle so much heavy so much heavy, deep thinking before we just need to detach and put on an old Seinfeld episode. And isn't it weird that there's still Seinfeld episodes that I haven't seen? I feel like there's still some Beatles songs that I haven't heard. 
For me to claim that I'm such a super fan of anything, it's kind of fun to find the hidden tracks. The stuff you, you thought you knew? No. There's still more. There's still more. Did I even wrap up the Michael Pollan stuff? I felt like I had so many thoughts. Like my wife and I kept pausing it like, what? What? It's the best feeling to have your mind blown by a smart guy like Michael Pollan who's actually a teacher at UC Berkeley. Could you imagine having his class? I understand college is overpriced, but that seems to be worth the price of admission. If you're going to Cal and you're like, yeah, Tuesdays and Thursdays I got Pollan. Coming in totally hungover. I got Pollan. This guy's such a windbag. Give me a C minus on my last day. You're like, you got Poland? Watch Netflix. Read his real book. I mean, I guess he's a fantastic professor. Of course, I'm guessing that. But just like any teacher, there's probably one or two students who are like, I don't like him. But he's teaching at Cal. Robert Rice teaching at Cal. Yeah, that's worth the price of admission, I think. Although I don't know what the price is. What is it? $300,000 a semester nowadays? Let's put him in the hole. Put him in that financial red zone. Let him climb out. It's a good business model. Anybody else have dreams where they're just running from wildlife? Bear attacks, tiger attacks, coyote attacks. Anybody just me? Why once a week? Let's analyze this. You could analyze it. I don't know. I don't want to Google it yet. We could Google everything. Instead, let's just float out this idea. I wake up in the middle of the night and I just get so happy. Oh, that's not really happening. Just a weird part of my brain as I'm laying unconscious in this mattress is running full speed from a wolf in the snow. Anyone else? It's exciting. If anything, it's exciting to think about. Vivid image and then just like every dream, it dissipates. The imagery, you're like, where did it go? Where did it go? It just fades throughout the day. Where did that dream go? They just fade. But last night, I was in like the sticks, very desolate area with some trees. And there the coyotes start to swarm and I'm running full speed and I see my wife and daughters and they can't help me. They're just watching. And I'm not getting like mauled, but the coyotes do catch up to me and they kind of bite me on the back. They just bite a little bit. I go, I'll survive this. And maybe that's the point is that I do have such a fear of coyotes. I don't know why. They're in the news a lot. They're on Nextdoor, that app. Oh, it should just be called Coyote Pictures because they're amazing. And neighbors have big fights about coyotes. But I'll survive a coyote attack. And isn't that why you came to this podcast? To know that I'll develop the confidence to survive the attack when it happens. Not if it happens, but when it happens. Ah, there's so much I should have said about psilocybin. Part of the research, though, is reconnecting all the findings from the 70s. And there were very smart doctors researching this already. And they were were being told by the Nixon administration, stop. You're not allowed. Your study is done. So Richard Nixon, Schedule 1, he made psilocybin, magic mushrooms, a Schedule 1 drug. Just looking at it like it was cocaine or meth or anything else and saying no to that, not realizing that it could change so many lives for the better. People who weren't taking it as a party drug, but people who could have been taking it for the last 40 years to heal some deep wounds. Wounds. Are you saying wound? Are you saying youths? Youths. How would Nixon be on Twitter? If Twitter existed back then, it'd be a nightmare, right? Actually, Twitter's a nightmare in any era. Podcast feels like a little safe space, but if I tweeted out, hey, let high school football players celebrate, Isn't that just a launching pad for people to now get upset and say, hey, I disagree with mean words. And I'm here to hurt you. 
with my mic drop moment. That's all Twitter is. Everyone thinks they had their mic drop comment. Oh, wait till I float this one out there. Oh, they're not ready for me. What are we ready for? Damn, it doesn't get more rhetorical than that. What are we ready for? Until next time, I think that's a good spot to end. I'm going to go put some more stuff in the pile, in the family pile, the unintentional pile. Ours is two feet to the right of the coffee maker, if you must know. And there's a lot of expired Kohl's cash in that bad boy. And yes, my wife did find a very wide box acting like we're organizing it. But you know what? I found a Pez dispenser in there and we don't have any Pez. That's where you'll put foreign coins. That's where you'll put the Christmas cards that you saved from seven years ago because you thought you still wanted to look at those kids. No, you didn't. It's at the bottom of the pile. Along with your Nielsen invitation. You want to be a Nielsen family? They'll send you a dollar. It's in the pile. They made you think about it at least. Should we be a Nielsen family? That's an old reference. But we get the Nielsen offer. Should we? Oh, what an honor. All right, that's it. Leave a nice rating on iTunes or Spotify. I don't think Spotify is letting you leave any reviews. So I'll just end it here. Appreciate you listening. That's episode 196. It's in the books, folks. I'll talk to you soon.